Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith. And me, Diana O'Carroll. And this week in the news, it looks like researchers have discovered a key reason why some people are susceptible to TB, tuberculosis, and others aren't. Publishing in the journal Cell, Lalita Ramakrishnan and colleagues from the University of Washington think that it's the levels of an enzyme called LTA4H which give some people better immunity. And it's not those with more of the enzyme who are the winners, nor the people with the lowest levels of LTA4H. Similar to Goldilocks and the Three Bears, it's actually those individuals who have a middling or just right amount of the immune enzyme who have TB resistance. Now, people who are heterozygous or have two different versions of the gene which makes LTA4H have this middling amount of the enzyme. And the researchers tested this in a controlled environment by looking at zebrafish, which had been selected to produce different levels of the enzyme. And it became apparent that LTA4H was playing the same role in their immunity. Now, Ramakrishnan then compared her findings with human geneticists from Washington and Vietnam and Nepal to see if they were the same. And it emerged that it was this heterozygosity in people which, produ- which produced the ideal levels of the enzyme. What's interesting about this is that for a long time it's been known that people with a nasty case of TB may improve if you give them a dose of anti-inflammatories. It may be that these people are producing too much of LTA4H and by giving them anti-inflammatories you reduce the effect of the enzyme to a medium level and this makes life difficult for the TB bacteria, making the patient feel better. And it's an important finding because there are now so many new strains of TB which are drug-resistant. So if you can tinker with the human immune system instead, then you might come up with a better solution to the problem. Plus, there's the added bonus that LTA4H also confers immunity to other mycobacterial infections like leprosy. And of course, with so many people infected, something like one person in three worldwide, and spreading at huge numbers, and I think it's 10,000 new infections, 10,000 deaths a day, TB is probably one of the worst scourges that exists in the world at the moment, I would say. Yeah, and it's affected quite a few people in the UK recently as well. It's, it's not exactly a dead disease here. No, something like 10,000 new cases a year in the UK. I think it's, it's up from almost got rid of, and people were very enthusiastic in the sort of antibiotic era, and it has made a resurgence because it's become resistant, so new ways to tackle it very important indeed now from one very new discovery to another very new and very worrying discovery indeed scientists have found that there are millions of tons of sequestered methane which are locked up underneath the shallow ocean shoreline of the arctic coast of siberia and these methane deposits are becoming unstable and they're escaping into the air actually in the form of millions of tons of it coming out every year just from a two million square mile area there are more tonnage of methane coming out than there are actually methane coming out of all of the rest of the world's oceans. So this could have a catastrophic effect on climate change in the future, especially if the amount coming out increases. This is a piece of research that's been done by someone called Natalia Shikova. She's a researcher at the University of Alaska at Fairbanks. And what she and her team did was, over a number of years, go to this bit of Siberia and take measurements from both the water and the air above the water to measure how much methane is in there. And what they've discovered is that the water is is saturated with methane. Now, the interesting thing about this bit of coastline is it's very shallow. The water there is less than 50 metres deep and it's only been flooded for between five and 7,000 years, a maximum of 15,000 years. And what the researchers think is going on is that there are forms of methane there called methane clathrates. And this is when you put uh, water under a certain temperature and a certain pressure, 
you get the water molecules forming little watery cages with a hole in the middle, which can soak up some gas, in this case a methane molecule. Now, if you destabilise those clathrates, the methane can come out, and this means it will bubble up to the surface. And their concern is that there's so much methane coming out, they think that the warm water of the oceans flooding into this area in the last five to 10,000 years, plus global warming on top of this, may be destabilising these deposits, and the whole ocean area could just burp up a huge amount of this methane, and this could have enormous consequences for climate change because methane is between 30 and 50 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than CO2. So if the methane comes out, it will obviously make the world warmer and that will accelerate the problem that made it come out in the first place. So it could make a sort of positive feedback loop or a vicious cycle. So let's hope not, but it's certainly important to keep on monitoring this now they've discovered it. Yeah, it's pretty frightening stuff. Well, also this week, on a slightly lighter side, archaeologists have described the discovery of some of the earliest evidence for advanced advanced human thought. Now, publishing in the journal PNAS, Pierre-Jean Texier and colleagues have analysed nearly 300 bits of carved ostrich shell from a site in South Africa. Now, these shell fragments are thought to be about 65,000 years old and were found at the site of Dieppkloof Rock Shelter, where there are layers and layers of Middle Stone Age archaeology. These eggshell fragments have a fairly common motif on them, which involves the scoring of two parallel lines and some cross-hatching, which links them. So they actually look a bit like a simplified picket fence drawing. Now, it doesn't sound like a very hard graphic to achieve, so it could just be someone doodling, perhaps. The authors of the study think not, because the design was prevalent on so many pieces. And also, when they tried to copy the design using napped flints and a new ostrich egg, they found it was really tough to actually score any sorts of lines on the surface. So someone was making a determined effort. Exactly. They're actually working quite hard at doing this and they were doing it repetitively as well. So it does seem intentional. And it's not the first evidence of artwork per se, as there have been shell bead discoveries, also from Africa, about 75,000 years old. And there are some more examples further away, this time in Israel, which date back about 90,000 years. But these ostrich shells are one of the earliest examples of graphic design. It's important because it demonstrates what's known as symbolic thought, the idea that some kind of decoration or image can carry a meaning that's understood by other members of your society. So, for example, if you have a decoration on your ostrich egg, water vessel it might have been used for, it might imply that you belong to a particular group of people. Maybe you're making yourself more attractive by doing it, or uh, maybe it was something only the adults or the women did. We may never know uh, what these graphics mean, but they do point to some sort of advance in human thought about 65,000 years ago. And to put that into context, of course, the first writing appeared only in the last, what, 5,000, 4,000 BC? Uh, about, actually, I think there's some evidence about 6,000 BC. But this means this is very, very, very early, 10 times older than that. People were, were putting something which is akin to writing, I suppose, it's symbols, onto a, an object which argues for a very big thought process jump, doesn't it, a long time ago? Yeah, um, and it's actually about 20,000 years earlier than the, the previously imagined uh, great cognitive leap that you know people were saying when humans moved into the European continent, suddenly they, they had this fantastic cognitive leap. But no, actually, this is happening 25,000 years earlier in Africa. Tremendous. We'll also talk about Africa. There's a researcher at the University of Rochester, John Tarduno, who's published a paper in the journal Science this week. And what he and his colleagues have done is to wind back the first or earliest evidence for the Earth's magnetic field existing by a good 250 million years. So scientists don't exactly know when the Earth first came by its magnetic field. Sometime at the moment, 
around about 3.3, 3.2 billion years ago. We, we know there's evidence for the magnetic field being there. This is the evidence that it's there from 3.5 billion years ago. What they did was to scour South Africa for some very old rock samples, some quartz, and what they then did was to put those grains of quartz into a very sensitive magnetic device called a squid, which is a superconducting quantum interference device. That's why they call it a squid. And this is capable of measuring very, very sensitive changes in magnetic fields. And when a rock is forming, when it's molten, any particles that are magnetically active in the rock, when they can move around in the molten rock, will line themselves up with the Earth's magnetic field if it exists at the time. And then when the rock cools, they're locked into position. So if you put those rock samples into one of these devices that can read these magnetic signals and you then heat the rock up, as its magnetic fingerprint, if you like, flicks back into line with the magnetic field in the device you can register how much it's changed and therefore what was written into it in the first place. And that's how we can work out that these rock samples that were three and a half billion years old had a signature of the early Earth's magnetic field written into them. The interesting thing, though, it was only about 50 to 70% as strong as it is now. The consequences of that would be that the northern and southern lights, the aurora that we see, would have been a lot bigger and a lot more intense. Some people are saying they would have been visible even as far south as where London and New York are now, and that would have probably been the same in the southern hemisphere. But the other point is that the Earth would have taken much more of a battering from the solar wind, because although the sun was younger then, it was ejecting enormous amounts of charged particles in this solar wind. And so the Earth probably had a lot of its lighter molecules and a lot of its water stripped away by this intense battering, coupled with a reduction in the magnetic field. But the really interesting thing is that we know life got started on Earth also around the same time as these researchers have found this magnetic field being in existence. And we know the magnetic field is critical to protect the Earth from being totally basted by solar radiation. And therefore, this kind of fits with when we saw life appear, and therefore... This is the first evidence for the Earth's magnetic field, probably the, the key thing that, that we had that, that catalyzed the existence of life on Earth to start with. Brilliant. So they had something, uh, well, they didn't have any factor 50 then, which is what I have to use. <laughs> no, they didn't. But um, indeed, you didn't have that to rely on, but you did have a magnetic field. OK, well, also in the news this week, uh, researchers have shown that you can knock migraines on the head, talking magnetism, with a magnet. And Dr Richard Lipton is a neurologist at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. What a great place to work. He's based in New York and he's with us now. Hello, Richard. Hi there. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. You've worked on migraines, but many people may not understand exactly what a migraine is. So could you first of all tell us, Richard, what a migraine really is, medically speaking? Sure. So a migraine is a specific headache disorder that's characterized by pain that's usually one-sided, usually throbbing, often associated with a visual display called an aura, but always associated with something other than just pain, sometimes aura, sometimes nausea, sometimes sensitivity to light or sound. And what do we think is going on in the brain to trigger these initially visual effects and then this throbbing, pulsing headache that makes people do other things like retire into a dark room and, and sometimes, unfortunately, experience nausea? Well, for migraine with aura, which was what my study was about. There's a lot of evidence that what's going on in the brain is an event called cortical spreading depression. And in cortical spreading depression, which you can also produce very easily in experimental animals, a wave of excitation followed by a wave of inhibition marches slowly forward over the surface of the brain. And as it marches, the excitation produces, if it's in visual cortex, 
produces spots of light and zigzag lines, and then the inhibition produces a graying out of vision, which is sometimes called the scotoma. And, and then people get the pain, but why do they experience pain? Right, so the link between aura, the aura and pain probably has to do with the fact that there are pain-sensitive fibers in the membranes that surround the brain, referred to as the meninges, and the aura itself directly activates these pain-sensitive fibers in the brain, which are parts of a nerve called the trigeminal nerve, and that is likely how aura initiates pain and migraine. So in your study, you were asking, can a, a pulse of magnetism alter the outcome of someone seeing these, initially these auras? Does it prevent them going on to get a headache? Well, so the method we used is called transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's a method that's been around for 30 years. The idea is that if you apply a powerful magnet to the surface of the skull, the magnetic field penetrates through the skull into the brain and induces a small amount of current flow. And depending on where you do it and when you do it, that can have either diagnostic or therapeutic applications. So how many people did you enroll in your study and what were the outcomes? Yeah, so here the idea was to use a magnetic pulse to induce a current during the aura of migraine with the idea that if you induce the current flow, you would disrupt that march of electrical activity and possibly prevent or dramatically reduce pain. So we ended up randomizing about 200 people, 160 of whom ended up treating either with the real magnetic device or with a sham device that vibrated and clicked but did not deliver a magnetic field. And we found that of the people who got the real device, 40% were pain-free two hours later and remained pain-free at 24 and 48 hours, most of them, whereas only 20% did that well when they were treated with the sham device. And that's a result comparable to what you see with the best of available medical therapy. Speaking of which, I've got an email here from Serafina Anderson who says, why don't normal painkillers like paracetamol or ibuprofen work when you get a migraine? Well, sometimes they do. And, you know, there's like every condition, there's a broad spectrum of severity. So ibuprofen and paracetamol may work if you treat the migraine very early. If you wait and wonder if you need to treat, oral medications become less effective because migraine also affects the gut and you may not absorb the medication as well. And for people who don't do well with over-the-counter medications, there's certainly a, a wide range of prescription drug options that are very effective. So I'm certainly not saying this is the only way to treat migraine. But given how common it is, uh, very large numbers of people suffer with migraines, is your method safe uh, to your knowledge? And therefore, what's the next step? Will, you, will we be seeing magnetic stimulators on the shelves of pharmacy shops so people can go and get one if they regularly suffer migraines? My hope is that the answer, the answer is yes. So in the UK, 18% of women, 6% of men have migraines. So it's an extraordinarily common disorder in the UK, in the US, and Western Europe, really, really around the world. Uh, yeah, the hope is that this will receive regulatory approval as a medical device and that it will become available to people who want to use it. 
and there is a portable device. So for most of its 30-year history, TMS was given with a large 70-pound device that cost perhaps 25000 U.S. dollars that was kept in doctors' offices and used by medical personnel. We studied a, a portable device that weighs about three pounds. It's about the size of a hair dryer, and the intention is that people will take the device home, and when they get a headache, they'll have an alternative to reaching for either an over-the-counter or prescription medication. Let's hope so. Thank you very much. Richard Lipton, who's at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. And that research, if you want to read up a little bit more about it, is in the April edition of The Lancet Neurology. And you can also find more about it and the references for the other news stories we've talked about today on our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash news. The Naked Scientist News Flash. Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.